Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 6, Episode 3, The Third Man. Let's get this show on the road. So obviously we want to get this episode started again by saying again, again, a huge thank you again to everybody who has been supporting our Etsy store. It sort of sounds like I'm making fun of it, but really I'm not. Like I'm honestly so thankful. We're, all three of us are incredibly thankful for for your support, for your continued orders of the pin and the tote. And thank you so much. Every time I, I, someone talks about ordering one or like someone says, oh, we, we have another order coming in. It's like the entire group just is a little like, yee moment. Yeah, if you're interested in the tote or the pin, both of them are wonderful. You can find them if you go directly to our website, carryingwayward.com, and it'll link you immediately to our Etsy. Head on over there, check it out, see how pretty it is, and uh, see if you want to grab a grab one. Or two. Or three. So what did you think of this episode? You were right. It feels like we're back on the show I know. Like, yes, there's lots of Aggr- microaggressions, I think is the best term to use this episode, where it's like little things that are like, oh, oh, I don't like this, or ooh, something seems off. But like, you know, like not only are they back together, but Cass is finally back for the first time. I was going to ask, like, how much of that feeling is due to the ca- to the to the Cass <laughs> to the fact that Cass is back? At first, I didn't think about it because I think I was already in the headspace of being there. But as soon as Cass came back, I was like, oh. I'm feeling this again. Well, that's good. Can we feel the recap? Before the recap, I have to share. For as good as that third cop was, the one who the the locust crawling out of his head, his like delayed reaction to his friend dying at the beginning is the most like weird, uncanny, poorly edited shot. And I loved it. It made me (laughs) laugh so hard. I don't even think I noticed that, to be honest with you. But I'm ready for a recap. Count me down. All right. Three, two, one. We have a cold open on a cop who caught himself shaving and then his skin starts falling off and then you know, gets bloodier and bloodier until he's literally just a pool of blood. We have our first, the brothers reuniting in their separate cars, not for long. And it turns out they're dealing with the 10 plagues uh, because someone has Moses' staff and Sam's all like, well, I've been trying to get Cass to help and he refused to talk to me. And Dean's like, well, I'll try once just to humor you. Cass appears immediately because they have a special bond we'll talk about. There's a lot of weird, like the dynamics feel off. Something's wrong. It feels like Dean's walking into like new characters. It's really weird. Uh, But they do end up finding out that an angel bought a kid's soul to give him part of Moses' staff so he can get revenge for his brother who was framed by cops, which is a whole other bucket of worms. And then we have a whole lot of like crazy angel brawl fight thing where we find out that Raphael is starting a civil war in heaven. And we get Balthazar, which is really cool, who he's let go at the end of it. And they kind of a weird, dark ending Sam being weird time. That's about it. That's the episode. It felt like we were back in the right show. And I know a lot of it is coming from Sam right now. And I think I, I think this is going to be a recurring theme for the next little while. I have a new crazy theory, which I will get to in the long game, I think, which is my segue to the long game. (laughs) That was seamless, my dear. (laughs) So the Road So Far montage this week was particularly interesting to me because it really very specifically referenced another Ben Edlund episode, which is Free to Be You and Me, which is the episode where Dean and Cass trap Raphael. 
but also where Dean gives Cass the last night on Earth speech. And there's like a noticeable fanfic gap between the time that Dean and Cass leave Raphael and the moment that they get back to the hospital. Yep. What I find interesting about this is that these clips are edited right alongside conversations between Dean and Lisa, basically stating that Dean can be her part-time boyfriend, along with like Dean and Cass's quote-unquote breakup at the end of season five. And we're going to come back to that in critical time because I'd like to introduce the idea of paratext. Not that it's a new idea by any means, but it's it's one that we really haven't talked about on this podcast. And I, I think that we are going to need it, especially now that the road so far is kind of becoming like more and more important. There was a moment in planning this episode where you mentioned writing about paratext, and I'm like, I can't wait to hear about this. Mostly because I've never heard this term before. Well, it's going to be very exciting. We are treated to the horniest montage of Sam. Oh, God, I literally, my notes for this were just, fuckboy Sam? Which, like, if that's your thing, must have been a real treat. What we learn through this montage is that Sam just spent the night with a sex worker, and what's implied is that he was so good in bed that the sex worker didn't want to charge him, and instead offered to see him on her night off next time. Oh, Jesus. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but what I really would like us to focus on here for the long game is that Sam has been sleeping with sex workers, because I'm assuming that this wasn't the first time that this happened, which I think we can agree is a departure from his relationship with sex from the last five seasons. Again, th- this this is leading to my, my theory, as I mentioned, we'll get to in a moment, but yes. We find out that Cass has not been answering Sam's prayers over the last year, and Sam is convinced that Cass isn't going to answer Dean. But in a show of faith in his boyfriend, Dean prays anyway, and of course, Castiel shows up, and Sam is insulted. <laughs> oh, I, like, it just, again, that narrative of, like, Cass doesn't particularly like Sam, like, doesn't hate him, but just doesn't like him. You know, I was actually thinking about you when I was writing this, because I was like, maybe, <laughs> you know, like, as much as I don't subscribe to the idea, I think that it, this moment does give credence to what you were saying, right? Like, <laughs> uh, and also, it's around here, I'm going to bring up something for the long game that I feel like... I need to say because it should have been part of the long game, but only for me because no one else, I guess, had this problem. None of them know Chuck is God. Like, that is a viewer-only experience. They are unaware of this. It wasn't even a matter of like, oh, I just had the realization. It was just like a moment of like, because they talk about like, oh, God's still being missing. And it's like, oh, yeah, they haven't been given the omnipotent camera view of director of a TV show to see this scene we saw. The thing is, and I want to be really clear about this, at the time that this was airing, the Chuck is God theory was a theory. Oh, okay. With hindsight, it's easier to say, like, of course it was God. But, like, at the time, it hadn't been discussed openly. Okay, so this is one of those things we've kind of, like, broken early a little bit because it's so blunt and, like, it doesn't need to be hidden. I'm just really curious when they will eventually go and encounter Chuck again and how that will go. I don't think they'll figure anything out or he'll say anything, but like, I'll just be curious for our sake. I mean, either way, it's definitely going to have some really interesting repercussions. So so as a result of like Dean praying and Cass showing up and Sam being insulted, we finally get to hear the iconic line, Dean and I do share a more profound bond. Let's pretend you were one of those people who was like devoutly anti this being a relationship. 
What does that line mean to you? It means that they're brothers. Uh. <laughs> Get back in your troll hole. <laughs> All right, we find out that there's a civil war happening in heaven since the events of Swan Song, and that a number of powerful weapons were stolen, one of them being the Staff of Moses, which is like the source of the weirdness that's happening in the first third of the episode. I'm also just going to say I'm a little proud that it only took me the second death to put it together that it was the Ten Plagues. Very nice. Good job. I blame that on being Jewish, where every year for one of our holidays, we have to name all Ten Plagues as we drink wine. I mean, thanks, Judaism. (laughs) Way Judy's if you help me solve a supernatural murder mystery early. It's a very, very tangential. I'm going to bring that up in the next Passover uh, Zoom dinner. There you go. You can be like, hey, guess what? (laughs) We also get the other iconic line. My people skills are rusty. Pardon me, but I've spent the last year as a multidimensional wavelength of celestial intent. What an amazing line. Like, I love that everything about it, it's like one of those things where it's like every time you read it, you would pick on a different word to be like, wait, what? The delivery. Like, Misha Collins is, like, he kills it. He absolutely kills oh, it. Oh, he does. It's such a good, it's, it's such a perfect moment. This, this episode, I think, is, again, one of those just like, it, it, whether it's just because we haven't had him for two episodes, it, it's like a reminder of how phenomenal an actor he is. Uh, The civil war in heaven is basically between the Archangel Raphael, who wants to put the apocalypse back on, and Cass and his followers or his friends or his brothers, whatever, however we want to look at it, who don't want that. I weirdly feel like this isn't going to be a major plot, as weird as that sounds. I feel like this is going to be very, like, ancillary to the show, and it's sort of just an excuse to have, like, Cass be busy sometimes or angel shenanigans sometimes. I'll be intrigued to see how this storyline goes and how much it does get, like, resolved or break into the main plot. We will find all of that out this season. We meet Balthazar, who's played by Sebastian Roche, who introduces us to the idea that souls hold power and that owning souls is basically a source of power. So, first thing I have to say is... If I had a nickel for every time a show about siblings confronting supernatural threats cast an absolute smoke show of a hunk to play Balthazar, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. What other show is it? Charmed. He's like the hottest guy on that show. I didn't watch Charmed. It wasn't my thing. Honestly, just go watch, just go look up any Phoebe and Balthazar scene and just like, they cast that specifically for people to write smutty fanfic. It's a good strategy. My other thing that I was going to say, though, is like the whole giving souls more value now, I think is such a weird, it feels like a really weird thing to do suddenly, but it also doesn't like retroactively like ruin anything. I just think it's a really interesting turn to take. Listen, again, there's a, there's a civil war in heaven. And so there has to be some sort of stake somewhere, right? Like currency of some sort. And so there you go. Dean questions Sam about why he was so okay with Cass, like doing the soul check as I'm going to be calling it from now on, on Aaron. And we're going to get to that in story time. But here, what I want us to notice is the language that he uses, which is like, there's been a few times that you got me wondering, which is eerily similar to what Samuel said to him last week. Sometimes I wonder about you, Sam. At this point, I'm going to use this uh, platform to announce another crazy batshit uh, theory. So I think before I kind of had this leaning that like, oh, maybe there's some sort of like bit of Lucifer left over in Sam. I'm not sure which way to lean with this one, but it's one of these two. Either this is actually Lucifer in Sam's body, and he's just been playing this really well somehow. Uh, And again, let's 
the magical bullshit being brought back from the dead through whatever means he found to do so, allow him to not appear as a demon as far as any other one would see, whatever bullshit, you can explain that away. The other one is, and especially the next thing we're going to talk about in the long game, which is how Sam describes his time in hell as being very different to Dean's. I'm more afraid to say I think this is Sam and just he's playing for a different team now. Oh, that maybe like Sam became a demon, basically. Not even a demon, but just like has seen what hell can be and is like, yeah, I'm going to take over for Lucifer. I'll, I'll be a human with demony powers, but like I'm going to be the new ruler of hell uh, to the point where I'm even willing to say that the phone call with Samuel in episode uh, two was to Sam. Interesting. We play off the whole like, oh, the Winchesters aren't going to see us do this thing. But like in reality, they're only really hiding it from Dean. Sam's fine knowing it because he knows already. My crazy theory, Sam is the new uh, ruler of hell. The new if Lucifer were a title, it's now Sam's. Well, let's keep that red thread in mind. And uh, like you mentioned, finally, Sam basically tells Dean that even though being in hell was torture for Dean, that it wasn't necessarily for him because they're different which is weird i don't know what the the proper term for whoever rules hell is president king uh dictator if there's a title but whatever it is sam is it or gunning for it all right good to know in story time this week our theme is brutality which is the quality or the state of being brutal and brutal comes from the latin brutus which means heavy dull stupid insensible unreasonable the Old English brute, meaning of or belonging to animals, non-human, and the Old French brute, meaning coarse, raw, crude. So from here, I think it would be like an interesting thing to sort of think about this episode through the lens of brutality, especially the kind of brutality and violence that can be perpetuated by institutions. Uh, do you want to get us started with Cass then? Because I feel like as far as brutality goes, I think he was kind of the worst. I completely agree with you. Like to me, the crux of this episode really happens when Cass has brought Aaron, Sam and Dean back to the motel and basically just tells the brothers that he's going to have to check Aaron's soul. He's going to have to do the soul check. He says that the process can be really painful for Aaron, but he doesn't really have a problem with doing that because according to him, it's the only way to check that Aaron is telling the truth about selling his soul to an angel in exchange for the staff of Moses. And Cass says something that's a bit concerning here when Dean objects. And he says, like, I don't care about that, Dean. I don't have the luxury. Like, this is where it kind of starts feeling off. Like, this was the first kind of pinpoint of, like, something's different. And I feel like there are some more like subtle things that Cass does that I guess are kind of like weirdly brutal in their own actions. He He's very like ruthless in just sort of the directness he takes in dealing with this scenario of just like knocking out the dad, kidnapping the kid, not even offering to return the child. And even when he's suggested, let's just like bring him home. He literally goes, that's what the cops are for. Yeah. The cops shot his brother already. Like let's make sure he gets home safe. Let's just leave this poor child alone in a room where someone looks like they may have just fallen out a window potentially and is lying here alone, passed out. Let's just leave him. The cops come deal with him. It's like that's so like there's a level there's times where Cass is like not all there because he doesn't understand when he's doing something that isn't like socially acceptable. But this is like actively maliciously like wrong. I would like to focus on the 
reason why Cass needed to know this so badly, right? Because like it, it wasn't really to protect humans from the weapons of heaven. Maybe it was a little bit, but I, I really don't think that it was the main reason, right? Like Cass wanted to know the name of the angel who had stolen these weapons so that he could go and take those weapons for himself and use them to win the civil war in heaven. And that is why Cass doesn't have the luxury, quote unquote, to care about the ethics of torturing a child. See, I found a bit of irony in this, in just how human the entire thing is. There's a, it, like I know the idea of like getting these weapons back to like fight a war doesn't seem like it should be this, but it is kind of petty of him to put his own needs above there's something about the way he is so intent on figuring out who this weapons dealer is effectively that it almost feels a little personal and of course when we find out there is a bit of a relationship to him and balthazar in the past it, it almost feels like he suspected it or something or he suspected someone he cared about being the traitor and again it's that weirdly human moment uncast that allows him to be so brutal is that he his need for something personal almost. Yeah, I mean I think I mean I think at the time you know he didn't know that it was Balthazar, right? Like but I think it was personal in the sense that like it's he is fighting the war. He feels like he's fighting the war and he says, you know, me and other angels don't want Raphael to win. And so like it's it's kind of unclear at the moment what his role within the leadership of the other side or like the opposing side to Raphael is, but like you can sort of assume that he's in there somewhere, right? It was less of a, I need these weapons to finish this. That's like, I need to know who's betraying me. Who betrayed me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that this is important, right? Because like, I, I guess I just don't want us to forget that this is happening like from a premise where three police officers conspired to cover up the death of Aaron's brother, who's a black teenager. You know, he's uh, referred to on the show as a kid with no face and a planted gun. And as we know, this is an all too common example of police brutality, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada. And it almost feels like Aaron is the second kid with no face and a planted weapon on this show. because. What would have happened to him if other angels had found him before Cass did? You know, I, I think they would have simply killed him and he would have died as the result of Balthazar selling him the staff of Moses in exchange for his soul in order to enrich himself of his soul, right? So like, again, the planted, the planted weapon, the kid with no face, it didn't matter to them who he was or who he is. Like his identity didn't matter to, to them. There was the obvious like discussion to be had and that is being brought up in this episode of the wrongdoing of police, the the mistreatment of uh, the black community and uh, communities of color. But I didn't even think about it from the angel perspective that almost that parallel of like the angels have this weirdly higher authority and humans are considered lesser than them. So if they did find any human in this scenario, it'd be the same result. And just drawing that parallel is so powerful. And I'm glad we got we got it here together. And I'm also kind of glad the show didn't try to ham fist it too much because they would have really ruined it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you had told me in season one that Supernatural would make an episode about police brutality, like openly about police brutality, I would have been very, very scared. But I feel like this is... It feels weird to say tasteful, but that seems to be the best word to use here. Well, I think that they're exploring a topic with respect. 
they're likening the institution of police and law enforcement to heaven and trying to make this, you know, just to kind of say like, hey, you know, heaven as an institution is doing those same things as this institution. And then you can draw your own conclusions from that. I, I will say when we get to our, our critical time, we get to our writer, I will thank them for writing this so delicately as they did. Shall we discuss Sam? For Sam, I think that we see the theme of brutality come through at different times. There's like the horny montage where like we see him like training and sweating and boasting his sexual exploits, uh, which I, I do find very raw and very crude. There's something very objectifying about it, right? Like very dehumanizing almost. Yeah, so I'm actually kind of curious to know who you're referring to when you say that, because I feel like they do it to both of the characters in the scene. I mean, of course they were going to do it to the sex worker because it's supernatural, but I feel like doing it to Sam is kind of like a a, a bit of a departure from, from what we had seen previously. Yeah, I agree. This whole thing just exudes a weirdly, um, and to use a term from last week, alpha male energy, which I really dislike. Yeah, he's gone like full douchey bro here. It is incredibly out of character. And given that I think this entire season up till now, I have harped on this repeatedly that Sam feels like not Sam. And I think it's becoming more evident is kind of the point. It just really leaves you wondering, like, who is this character? What really did happen to him and what made him become like this? Because this is not the educated, soft, well-thinking and smart boy we've grown to love. So when do you think in the season we're going to find out what's going on? Just out of curiosity. Uh, uh, episode six or seven. Six or seven? Not halfway yet, but close. All right. Sounds good. And now it'll be the first scene in the next episode. Something. <laughs> episode four, scene one. He will turn, to, he will turn to, say, to Dean twirling his mustache going, I am the devil. <laughs> Here's my golden fiddle. I it just... won't be his mustache. It'll be his sideburns. <laughs> Also, just on that note, too, they took a weird amount of things I noticed this episode about Sam. Don't ask why these were things I noticed. But, like, he is shot in a lot of scenes to make him look taller than Dean, more so than usual. Oh, they do a weird, a few shots where they kind of, like, shoot it where it's, like, it's jarring how, like, oh, right, he's a bigger person. Uh, and also, I like that you point out in this scene how sweaty he is from working out. But then, like, three sec three, like, frames later, he is, like, perfectly dry. Well, you know, he sweats, but only when it's appropriate, because he is like the perfect specimen of man right now, right? Calling it now, devil magic. Devil he's magic. He's using his devil magic to dry his sweat. <laughs> I had also noted that there's a moment where he's breaking down the door at Officer Colfax's house, which surprises Dean. He's like, whoa, like. It's like an energy he's exuding here that he is. We're seeing a pattern. I really, I'm getting that like vibe where it's like, He's going to start nagging women at bars and he's going to start calling like non-hunters normies. Like oh, he's going to get that kind of like grossness to him. Well, I mean, let's see again. If we only have to wait until episode six or seven until we find out, then we're pretty close to that. <laughs> and then there's him not only having no trouble with Cass doing the soul check on Aaron, even holding Dean back. 
when he wants to intervene. And so this is where like, I want to talk about what happens when we do nothing in the face of brutality or violence, or at least the kind of brutality we see here, where it's inflicted by somebody with great power, Cass, uh, on someone who has very little to none, Aaron. Because by doing nothing and by actively stopping Dean from intervening, I, I think that Sam is complicit in the same way that the officers who helped cover up the death of Aaron's brother. We've argued this before, we've brought it up before, is that inaction is permitting someone else's action. We have Dean object to it. There's even an attempt to stop it where, again, Sam stops him from interfering. But we also, and I mean, we'll move on to Dean in a bit, but like the entire thing, as much as Cass feels so out of character here from being a little bit too harsh, and then Sam has been a whole bucket of alpha bro douche energy for the last three episodes, and especially this one, it feels out of character for Dean. Like Dean, you know, a season ago would have fought a lot harder for this. I find Dean to be in a really interesting spot here because I, I don't want to give him a pass, but at least he did show that he had a moral quandary when it came to the soul check, right? And he was the only one in the room to have that. He tried to intervene. Could he have done more? Absolutely. And that's why, to me, he doesn't get a pass, because he's showed us before, like you said, that he can do more. I'm thinking specifically about Justin Bellow, which addressed this exact topic of justice in wartime. And this is what's going on, right? Cass is at war. Justice in wartime. Like, is it right to kill the virgin to save the people in the police station? It wasn't. Was it right to torture the child in order to find the name of the angel? No, it was not. And Dean categorically refused to sacrifice the Virgin at the time. And now he, I don't know, you know, like he sort of kind of tried to stop the torturing of the child. Well, that's just it. It's Dean is still rusty. Like, I think this also helps just to expand on the development of Dean here is that he's, you know, it's his first time back in the field as a real hunter. Like it's, you know, he's really like dusted off the jacket and he's like fully re-enveloped himself. It still feels like vaguely fresh. So there is still a little bit of him that is not ready to fully, you know, get in the face of Cass and Sam to try to oppose them. He's almost like reverted to seeing them now as being the ones who've been doing this for the last year. And he's the one who's out of practice and maybe needs to take a backseat to them. I find that really interesting. Throughout the episode, we're kind of seeing Sam take on a leadership role, right? Like even Dean kind of remarks on it. He's like, oh, who who made you boss? You know, like Sam is kind of saying like, he's not asking, he's telling where they're going to go next, what they're going to do next, who they're going to call. And uh, usually that's Dean that acts like that. And so to kind of see that role reversal, I think makes, I think it puts that scene where Dean tries to intervene and Sam stops him into a little bit more context for me. So thank you for bringing that up. Like, and I think you made the perfect comparison to the, the not letting them sacrifice the Virgin that even Sam falters for a moment. Cause he's trying to look for like the mathematically the right decision. But Dean goes, no, like every life is worth saving. Even in the case that works, not killing the kid, but it's not worth hurting a child to get information. There's always another way. And season five, Dean would not have allowed this season 16 He's not as confident as he once was. And I think that the way that we as viewers will like go ahead and defend either Cass, Sam or Dean really in this episode, because you know that I am part of the, you know, Cass did nothing wrong group, right? So like I easily find myself doing mental gymnastics to excuse his bad behavior. Um, 
So the way that we tend to defend our favorite characters, like I think should make us feel called to reflect why we feel the need to um, defend our favorite characters. Like, I think that that should make us feel called to reflect on like why we think that their actions are justified and to just like break from story time for a second. Like this is fiction. No one was actually hurt. No child was actually tortured. Misha Collins tortured no children. Like it, you know, this is a character, Castiel, angel of the Lord, who in a fiction, tortured a child, but nothing really happened. So I I just kind of want us to keep that in mind here. But as I always say, like fiction allows us a safe space to work out some complicated feelings. And these are really complicated feelings, like especially when it comes to people we love doing objectively or even just arguably bad things. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult from a storytelling perspective, especially when you have characters you've grown to love to watch them do something that you actively disagree with. And I think it's healthy and right to be able to look at the characters you enjoy and break away enough to understand that, yeah, this character can make mistakes. They can do things that I don't agree with. It doesn't ruin their character. It's a developmental step. Hopefully it can be something greater in a learning experience, whether it be for us as an audience or for them as a character. You know, at the end of the day, here we have three characters who are well-beloved, who have become like idols to many people who watch the show. And in this scene, all three of them were wrong. One of them tried to stop it, but ultimately allowed it to happen. And they were all three there and all three made a mistake. Yeah. And I think that this, you know, again, like this idea of like, I think my point is to kind of embrace the messiness of all this in the sense that like, Just as, like you said, sometimes the characters that we love do bad things. Well, the people we love sometimes do bad things. And it's not easy to sort through those feelings when that does happen. I agree completely. And I think as our story time comes to an end, we start navigating into critical time. Shall we actually navigate into critical time? Yes. So this episode was written by my beloved Ben Edlund and directed by Robert Singer. And it originally aired on October 8th. 2010. Classic writing combo. Let's turn the page and head into the Hunter's Journal. What is this thing? Does it need to do that? Write down all of this stuff? Memory must be fickle or it could just recall these things. And why would they make notes of such benign things? Does the type of dog that he met really matter? Does meeting a dog truly warrant a page? Him, three pages? Why bother? It's not like someone will read this. Huh. Can you imagine if we were trying to transcribe this encounter? Like I need another book that describes my going-ons. Thank you, Drew. And what have you got for us today? When I watched this episode, to take my notes, I really did like a double take when I watched The Road So Far. And I know I talked about that earlier, right? I went back... And I rewatched it to make sure that I had seen it properly. And that really got me thinking about the Road So Far segment influences the way that I watch episodes, especially now, right? Because they always show you like things that are specific to the episode you're going to watch. And with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about paratext. 
have you ever heard, you, you said that you had never heard about this before, right? No, the, I, I, I feel like it's going to be one of those things where as soon as you're done, I'm going to go, oh, there's a word for that. But I, the word paratext, totally new to me. So please enlighten. Well, I mean, the word for paratext is paratext. So I'm not sure that there would be another word for it. And it comes from, it's basically made up of the prefix para, which means alongside or outside of and text. So alongside or outside of the text. And this term, paratext, was coined by French literary theorist Gérard Genette. And for this segment, I'm going to be drawing heavily from his article, Introduction to the Paratext, as translated by Marie McLean. And I'm going to make sure to put the full citation in the episode description for those who are interested. So when Jeanette wrote this article, I think that he was specifically talking about literary texts, like particularly novels, for example. But the concept has since been used for audiovisual media as well, like TV and film. So Jeanette describes paratext as any information that accompanies the text, the threshold or the vestibule of the text, the undecided zone between inside and outside of the text. So this sounds really esoteric right now, but I'm going to give you some very clear examples. And that includes the title, the section or chapter titles, the preface or the foreword, which Jeanette basically qualifies as paratext, given their proximity to the text. Other examples would include what he calls epitext, or things that exist like outside of the text, like interviews or conversations with the author or authors or creators. And I'd like to read a quick excerpt here. The definition of the paratext involves the necessity that someone should always be responsible for it, whether the author or one of his associates, but this necessity has various degrees. And so I want to be clear here that this, that like, Basically, in order for something to be considered paratext, it has to come from the author, the creator, the editors, etc. Like, it has to come from somebody who was involved in making the text. So if we bring this back to Supernatural, I think paratext that's really easy to identify is like anything that's said on stage at conventions, for example. And fans use this paratext all the time to analyze the show, right? Like we did that when we took into account Jensen Ackles' comments on Dean performing sex work in order to feed Sam when they were younger. Uh, another example would be like the blooper reels that are released by the production team and the episode titles, which we have so much fun talking about. The teasers, the trailers that were released while the sh show was still airing. And I would argue... The Road So Far segment, which serves as a reminder of previous episodes. And it's edited in such a way that it might make us view the episode differently than if we hadn't watched This Road So Far. So I think I've rambled on enough about paratext for now. We're definitely going to be coming back to this idea in future episodes, but I thought that it would be really important to define it well before really diving into it. One, thank you. Two, I was right. This is one of those things I've always been very aware of. A lot of the media I follow, I think video games are a really good example of this, where you have to cram so much in just a short time that on subsequent playthroughs or material released outside of the game that is then used to help flesh out the world and reveal more about characters and events and things. So I'm glad I can finally put a word on this thing I've been literally pouring my soul into for many, many years, thanks to certain franchises. So there's actually a lot of literature, academic literature on uh, games, uh, video games and paratext, because that is like a thing 
in in this storytelling uh, style. Oh, for sure. I mean, even just a fun quick aside, the video game Skyrim from the Elder Scrolls series, there is roughly, I think they did the math, roughly like 370 novels worth of books you can read that exist only in the game. And 90% of them don't really amount to anything, but enough of them do have information that is like you would never know this otherwise, but is relevant to the history of this world and could actually affect the way you think about different characters, interactions and stories. I just want to add here that it it really has to be, you know, again, like created f- directly from the creators, right? So like, this is why also when we talk about like John's journal, for example, you know, like, is it canon? Is it not? Like, I think that this is a really interesting example of arguably paratext. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing too. When like, it's something like, that was written by the creators of the games. The people who wrote the story wrote these novels to be included as part of the game's world, obviously. But like John's journal, you're right. Like, yes, it was written by someone and the studio who produces the show signed off on it. But how many people involved in the show's writing were directly involved in this writing? Actually, you know what? If it if it's if it was authorized by the studio, it absolutely counts as paratext. Oh, good. You know what? I, I, it's intriguing. I like this conversation part of it, though. Another example, I think, of, of interesting paratext is Pottermore, the Harry Potter. So everything that was said by J.K. Rowling after the release of those books is also paratext through which we should read her books, you know, if we choose to engage with them, which I understand why people wouldn't. But if you do, you certainly can and should use everything that she has said publicly as a lens through which to view those books. Very specific and well said. Uh, so I'm curious then, I don't want to go too far in this topic, but I just I need to get your opinion on this. What if the company that owns a franchise decides retroactively that a selection of texts or uh, content is no longer part of the universe? I would need to know a lot more context in order to answer that. Uh, basically, Star Wars, prior to the Disney's takeover, there were as in a hugely extended universe in novels, graphic novels, uh, and other mediums. And basically, when Disney bought Star Wars, they said anything that was not a like cinematic released uh, film. And then they specified a few ex- exemptions being like some of the animated shows, some of the TV shows. Uh, but basically, if they were not one of the main franchise films or one of these like few select pieces of media... They are considered non-canon. They are effectively official fan fiction was the term they used. I feel like when Jeanette wrote this, this was written in 1991, and he first talked about paratext, I believe, either in the late 70s or the early 80s. Those types of franchises didn't exist. And so, like, I'm not entirely sure that, like, this is something that could be answered simply from this one article. I would have to go look for, like, how people conceive of big franchises and multiverses and more of a thought experiment. I wasn't looking for a direct answer. I wasn't putting on the spot. I was doing the thing you do to me where you sort of ask a question because you want to just get the conversation rolling. But uh, I'm starting to read a lot more literature about this topic. And it's been it's been a bit of a an interesting ride. (laughs) One, I definitely want to be brought into this conversation and anything interesting you find, please send my way for a quick read. I would love that, especially if it's video game tied. I'm always going to be interested in that world. But secondly, to rein myself mostly back in, you know, it's true. I really feel like 
almost to its detriment sometimes. I feel like the road so far almost like sets up too many expectations for the episode. I think it was a few episodes ago in like season three or four when we had a second Trickster episode and the road so far included blatant references to the Trickster. And it's like, well, don't tell me that, like, regardless of whether or not he's going to be in it, you're like now setting up like either the like he's going to be in it ooh, or like, oh, are we teasing it? Like, you don't got to do that to me. Like, I don't know. I think it can be overused sometimes. I think in this case, the episode, it was done in a way where it didn't like push me in one direction or the other, which kind of makes me like almost try to figure out why they chose these clips and scenes. And as previously discussed, so I think this was a much better version of it. Let's go listen to what our community has to say. This week, we have a message from Bo. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us that recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what did you think of Cass's return to the screen? For our Roadhouse supporters, on our Impala Talk. Stay to the very end of this episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Drew and Marie. My name is Bo. My pronouns are they, them. And for the purposes of this voicemail, I am disclosing that I have ADHD and autism. I wanted to talk about neurodivergency and supernatural. Um, you've definitely discussed before Dean having ADHD, but with the recent episode on Free to Be You and Me, I wanted to bring up the discussion of an autistic reading of Dean and Cass. When discussing the episode, you talk a lot about Dean teaching Cass about how to be a man on Earth. And in many ways, the things that are considered alien about Castiel are autistic traits. Lack of understanding of social cues, such as personal space. Uh, there are points later on in the show where he doesn't get puns and jokes and is generally very straightforward and literal. He has emotions, but he doesn't emote in a way that people around him tend to understand. And he has an internal moral consistency that causes him to stray from heaven in order to keep his values. Um, when Dean is teaching him how to be human, he's essentially teaching him how to mask, which for those who don't know is the process in which autistic people act differently around people who they perceive as would being intolerant of their um, autistic traits. Masking can be uncomfortable for us and doing it puts a strain on our own mental health, but it's done because the shame and pressure of an outside society sometimes outweighs the comfort that being ourselves brings. This is a pressure Dean has felt acutely from a young age, a pressure to act in a way that is foreign to him. John probably would have not tolerated meltdowns, would have discouraged stimming and fidgeting, and we know that he encouraged Dean to act in a stoic, manly persona. Um, side note, going nonverbal and needing extra time to process emotional information, also autistic traits. Dean has grown up in a society that does not accommodate his needs, and so teaching Cass how to mask is ultimately an act of love, in that he is protecting Cass the best way he knows how, be a human, be straight, be neurotypical. While it is ultimately not the most fulfilling or true way to live, it's the one that keeps them the safest. I also think Dean is signaling to Cass that they don't have to be different around each other. The line, when humans want to feel something, we lie. When humans want something, not feel something. Uh, it feels like there is an implied, you don't have to lie to me. They are becoming safe for each other. If you're neurodivergent and you know that feeling of when you meet another neurodivergent person and you simply click, uh, you will recognize this kind of clicking between Dean and Cass. And that's what leads to this very quick level of trust and intimacy. 
There are other nuances like uh, autistic people being depicted as non-human in media and the problems that brings and the added layer of queer identity on top of neurodivergency. But this voicemail is only so long. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye. That was such a good voicemail. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bo, thank you so much for your beautiful voicemail. It, you know, I'm not even going to add anything to this because I think that on its own, it stands, right? Like it's just absolutely, it, it really shows like the validity of this kind of reading. I was really touched by the way that you explained that Dean showing Castiel how to mask was an act of love, even though it, you know, in the long run, I think a lot of people would agree that it it's probably not the most sustainable way to live, as you've mentioned, but he is, he is showing him safety, which is something that he had to learn for himself. And I think Dean is showing love by doing that. And I just, I had never really seen it that way. And I, I just want to thank you for, for illuminating that reading for me. I think my favorite thing now is people sharing views of the, of, of a character they identify with or can, un, can connect to in a way that someone else might not. So in a way like seeing them as uh, non-neurotypical, I think is such a beautiful way to connect with them and to make an understanding of this that actually I think sounds phenomenally well thought and put together. And again, just thank you so much for sharing this. I, I love these kind of voicemails uh, and this was a wonderful one. So Drew, what reflection and call to action do you have for this episode? I think I really saw something in Dean this week that hurts and it's that inaction. And I have, I can look back on my own life and see moments where I wish I had stood up and acted. I wish I had done more than I did or had done something period. This is my reminder to myself, a very, very specific call to action. You know, I, I am very lucky to be in a position of privilege as a straight passing white passing man uh, in a society that, values this more than anybody else for some stupid reason that they shouldn't. But this allows me to find, you know, situations where I can use that to help get someone else to feel safe or to share their message. Or, you know what, I, I don't want to be a like white knight or I'm like protecting people, but just being able to say, hey, if society doesn't look at me one way, at least let me use it to bolster other people's messages. So my reminder to stand up for people, to be good to people and to actively work against hatred in the world. Very blunt. And you, Mary, what about you this week? Surprisingly, I went in a very different direction because this episode is calling me to think about what I do and do not consider to be brutality or violence. Um, I, I, I used to be like, I used to believe that violence was never the answer to anything at all, right? Like those values that we grew up with, uh, what we were always told uh, in school in the 90s. But I feel like I've realized that this kind of ideology is also is also used to keep the status quo when it comes to oppression and marginalization of already vulnerable groups of people. And I'm realizing that there are instances in which the use of violence is warranted. And I have some reflecting to do as to what exactly the circumstances of those instances are. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano and hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our bunker supporters, Katira, L, and Jeremiah Thomas. This week, we'd like to thank Bo for their message. 
You can find the links to all our social media and our merch store at carryingwayward.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to us. If you like Carrying Wayward and you'd like to support us in our project to go through all 15 seasons of Supernatural, you can support us through Coffee or Patreon, and you can find those links at carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. What did we think of Cass's return to the screen? I think story-wise, we got into a lot of it, but essentially the idea of like having him back right away felt good. It's it's Cass, he's back. You know, even the fact that he shows up for Dean on the first try and Sam's like, what the hell, bro? It's been a year. I'm trying to get a hold of you. Mm. Uh, and kind of like the sassiness he gives Sam is like, oh, it's the same cast we know and love. And then it like quickly begins to div- like diverge to a different path. And you're kind of like, oh, Cass is being a little different. He's not just like, it's, this isn't just like dad's home from work and he's stressed. This is like, oh, Cass is really this year has been rough to him and this isn't the cast we left a season ago. 